uh, for your son who came and lived among us, who taught us, who led us, who showed us what it meant to uh, know you, who showed us the very heart of the Father and a heart that was so desperate to reconcile his broken children that he, uh, he bore a, a criminal's death, but was raised again on the third day. And we stand victorious in light of that, Father. And now we have your word that we have and we can learn and know and we can sing back to you and we can hear about it from Pastor Joe this morning. And so, Father God, that is our prayer as we sit down that we have open hearts and open ears and open minds to the word that you've given to Pastor Joe today that is the word of truth, it is the word of life, it is the word of, uh, of you. We thank you for this time, we thank you for this place. And all of God's children said, amen, you may be seated. Good to have you back, Carl, look. I can't even do it. Have you ever caught one? Yes, <laughs> um, today our sermon series surviving egypt the life of joseph number 28 the never-ending series i'm just joking it's over we're not doing life of joseph we're done with that um but let me just tell you what we've done since grace life started we preached through genesis with basically two series we did one called jesus and genesis and now we're doing the life of joseph and we covered about 80 or 90% of Genesis with that. We've done the book of Philippians. We've done 2 Corinthians. We've done Psalm 119. We got a little feedback there, guys. We did 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're getting ready to start Mark next week. At deep end, we've done Leviticus and Hebrews. Those were fun. Mark, the Gospel of Mark will probably be a long series. And somebody made the mistake this week, this literally this week of asking me, Pastor Joe, why do you take so long? Why do we do series at Grace Life that lasts for months and months and 90 minutes later? No, seriously, what I did is I began to explain to them my passion and core value for allowing the Bible to dictate our topics that I preach and not the opposite. Allowing my topics to dictate what the Bible preaches. So today I thought what I would do, we're going to do one week of this and then we're going to start Mark next week. So today I thought it would be good to take a week and pull back the curtain how the sausage is made, if you will, of how we handle God's word at Grace Life. So I'm either going to get some of you really fired up or bore some of you to tears. But I think it's so important for you to understand, all of us, because after all, our core values, mobile, organic, biblical, and generous, biblical is one of our core values. And I'm going to explain to you what I think biblical means. It doesn't mean we just like God's word. It means that what God's word says is more important than what we say. So it's important to understand what that means. So I'm going to look at a passage today in 2 Kings chapter 20 through verses 1 through 11 and then three verses in chapter 23. And I want to talk about the power of God's word. So 
In 2 Kings 22, 1 through 7, it's a story about after generations where Israel had had their own nation and they'd gone through a lot of things. The, 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 the kingdom had been divided. And the kingdom of Judah, the, the southern kingdom, the kingdom that has been reserved for God's people for generations, had kings that did not care about God or his law. They didn't care about the temple. They especially didn't care about his word. As a matter of fact, the temple had been let go. It was in disarray. Believe it or not, there were no copies of the law, the word of God. After a while, the word of God was rendered irrelevant to them. Yeah, it's nice we have it, but it's irrelevant. And then after a while, after it was rendered irrelevant, it wasn't for today. It's not modern. They discarded it. They forgot about it. King after king after king, generation after generation after generation. But then in 2 Kings 22, we learn about how God's grace intervenes in the nation of Israel and a man named Josiah becomes king. Despite generations of wicked leadership, he's a righteous man. And God had enlightened him. God had saved him. And so now he wants to embark on a job, which is to restore the spiritual heritage of Israel. He commands that the temple be repaired by the best, most honest, most competent carpenters in the land. And while they're doing that work, they're in there cleaning things out. They're doing the demo part. They're making sure they're going through all the furniture that's been rusted out and dusty and all the walls that need to be repairing. And, you know, the electricity wiring had shorts in it. And there's no electricity. It's just a joke. But something miraculous happens while they're in the process of restoring the temple. They're cleaning it up, getting ready for restoration. Then we see this story. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. They found their old Bible. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house. They delivered it to the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord, in other words, the carpenters and the contractors. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. That was a Hebrew, a Jewish custom, when something was breaking your heart. 2 Kings 2, verses... 23 verses 1 through 3. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. You see, he brought everybody together. This is big news. Something important has happened. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great, everyone. And he read in their hearing all the words of the covenant. Not just John 3.16. Of course, that wasn't written yet, but you get my point. He didn't read the bumper sticker verses. He didn't read the ones that really kind of fit his political agenda. 
He didn't read the ones that would make his friends that he thinks are in sin feel convicted or guilty. He read all of them. Not just cherry-picked what sounded good for the moment. In other words, this wasn't a topical sermon series. He read all the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Suddenly God's word appears on the scene. And they can't get enough of it. And not in bite-sized pieces either. They do it in big, massive, epic portions. They read it book by book, chapter by chapter, word by word, and you see an emotional, powerful reaction. And it's nationwide. So that's the history. Pretty cool, right? Let's look at the spiritual. What about God? What does he do? And why and how does he do it? I'm going to tell you why God's word is powerful. This was my social media campaign this week. For those of you that liked it, thank you. For those that didn't, God help you. <laughs> this is from the Grace Life uh, Instagram account. God's word is more important to the church than money, programs, fellowship, food, music, buildings, and activism. In other words, everything. Of all the things a church should be doing... The most crucial is how it handles and teaches and preaches the word of God consistently. God's word written and spoken is the single most powerful tool, precious resource, and important task. More than money, more than programs, more than fellowship, and yes, more than food. It's more important than music. It's more important than the buildings we use. It's more important than our political opinions. None of that matters without the precious resource of God's word as the underpinning and the guide and the direction. God's word, it is the power of transformation. So we need to be careful, disciplined, and have a process for interpreting and studying God's word. So let's explore a little bit of why God's word is more important than anything else the church has or does. First of all, it is the mind of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for all scripture, by the way. Not just the little verses you've memorized. Not the ones next to the Jesus fish on the pickup truck. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Yes, even a book that seems ridiculous like Leviticus is profitable and important and crucial. It is the mind of God. It is the thoughts of God. It is the decrees of God. It is the word of God. It is what God is saying to us, his people. God's word is the mind of God. It is what he is thinking, what his plans are. You know what else God's word is? It is the method of God. We like to put a lot of confidence in our man-made schemes, our marketing. And listen, some places are really good at it. We need to be better at it than we are. We're not that good at the marketing thing yet. We're trying to get better. But marketing is important. 
But it's pointless when we start using that as our method to win people to the gospel. Romans chapter 10, 14 to 17. How then will they call on him if they haven't seen a Facebook post? Oh, wait. That's not what it says. How then will they call on him if they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? It is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, the gospel, the word of God. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed that he has heard from us, what he has heard from us. So faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? Hearing through the word of Christ. It is the method of God. He has decided long ago that the way he will transform hearts and lives is through his word and his truth. That is the method that God has decided from the foundation of the world to use to save and draw his people to himself. But then you know what else? It's not just the method of God. It is also the power of God. Again, like I said before, the church doesn't have its power in its marketing, in its innovation, in its buildings, or its personalities. It's the word. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit. That's where the emotions are. The joints and of marrow, that means that's a sharp, sharp knife. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. By the way, the living word, living and active, does not mean that it changes and morphs to what society needs. Some people say, well, it's the living word. That means it can be whatever. No. It means it is actively working to change individuals in society that God calls out of darkness into light. No matter what that society says about it. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, 16 to 70, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the word of God, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We have to understand we can begin to do things in a really slick way. But if we don't recognize where the power of transformation comes from, we are a ridiculous waste of your money and your time. These are the attributes of God's word that make it the most crucial manifestation of God's power in our life. So now let's look at the personal side of this. I skipped, by the way, my explanation of the historical, spiritual, and personal day because it is what I'm going to teach you today in the personal application. I want to talk about how we learn God's word. And this is the lesson we learned from today's passage. You ready? The one I just read about Josiah and everything. We look at the history. These are people who have forgotten God's truth, and they found the word of God. We look at the theology. God's word pierces their heart, and it transforms them. And here's what happens. They ask this question. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
This is what happened to the people of Josiah. It's what happened in Acts chapter 2 when Peter and the disciples are preaching on the southern steps of the temple. It's what we desire to happen every week at Grace Life. We desire that the word would cut us to the heart and we would say to one, about one another, what shall we do with what we just heard? We want the cutting to be so deep and so profound that we are left panting and desperate for somebody to answer the question, what do we do? I don't want to waste this. I'll tell you, when I see the emotion and the passion of Josiah and the nation of Israel and what they felt, you know what it makes me want to do? When I was studying this passage this week, it makes me want to hug the scriptures close to my heart because I recognize, man, sometimes it's so easy to forget how important God's word is. I love reading about their response to God's word. I love reading about it in Acts chapter 2. Look at it this week. You'll love it. And frankly, let me tell you, it's a reaction that all good pastors want for their church. We all, as good pastors, want you to say to yourselves after a sermon, man, that cut me to the heart. What do I do? As your pastor, I'm talking about my relationship with you and Grace Light, my church family. I have this weekly stress point. It fills me full of anxiety. This insatiable desire to recreate this scene in 2 Kings each week. And I stress over it. Trust me. Each week I desire to hear my brothers and sisters in Christ ask the question, Brothers and sisters, what shall we do after hearing truth? So I feel a lot of pressure to be as appealing Relevant, marketable, and sometimes even as controversial as possible. My wife is always making fun of me with this. You think this title's good enough? Joe, it's not about the title. Yes, it is. It's got to be about the title. See, let me tell you, the temptation and desire is so strong in my heart. And it starts, frankly, Sunday afternoon after we upload the video from Sunday morning. Good, another week done. Oh, no, I got to do it again in six days. <laughs> it's tempting to start with modern, relevant issues. And then connect them to portions of Scripture looking for answers. That's the temptation. You know, if I talk about this issue that everybody's talking about, they'll really come and they'll listen and they'll hear. And then I'll feel, let me feel, how can I connect that issue with what the scripture says somewhere else? It's very tempting to do that, right? Because that makes me relevant. It's very tempting to use scripture to create a desired response that is influenced by my social, ethnic, gender, or even political, personal bias. Very tempting, because I know I'm right. <laughs> just, just joking, people. It's just a joke. It is the temptation to have a motive to insert my agenda into Scripture instead of following Scripture and let it have its own agenda. 
that is not on my timetable or my schedule. This approach to interpreting scripture is what we call eisegesis. Yes, you're getting a new seminary level word. Eisegesis is this, the process of interpreting the meaning of a passage or verse through the lens of one's own experiences influenced by our modern world view. Eisegesis, frankly, is often the foundation of topical Bible studies, books, sermon series. They're designed to address a certain topic like marriage or work or fear or money or relationships. And people eat that stuff up. And you know why? I think it's because we're so spiritually narcissistic that human nature, get this, I believe human nature, at least this is my human nature, is always more interested than a topic than a text. We're more interested in what we want to know instead of what the scripture has to say. So we start with our question and say, scripture, answer it. And pastors are tempted to do that. Look, there's nothing wrong with an occasional topical sermon. This is kind of what it is today. But it's the abuse of that that is the problem. The danger is that we won't take the necessary, and trust me, it's a lot, the necessary time and effort to understand each passage the way we should and try to connect it to our topic of, this, of choice. This results in weak, random, sometimes inaccurate interpretation that starts with us instead of God. It's a narcissistic approach to scripture, filtering it through the lens of modern culture and our own personal experience. But let me tell you something. I know that I am powerless to transform your heart with my agenda. Creative ideas. I know it is God's word that does that, not me. I'd like it to be me. I'd be rich. But it's not me. That's why at Grace Life, we are in a decidedly different, and we're in this camp passionately, and unwaveringly. That is the camp of exegesis. Eisegesis, putting your stuff into the scripture. Exegesis, the process of interpreting a text based on an investigation of the language, culture, and context. What does that sound like? History. Of the passage in its original setting. At Grace Life, we call this the historical context. We want biblical sermons that are relevant, of course. We want them to be poignant and apply to our lives today, but we want it to be based on what the text says, not what the preacher says. Exegesis looks at a text in context, and I'm passionate about this, if you can't tell. Exegesis looks at what the text says in context, desiring to hear what God's word says, rather than trying to make it support a popular or desired notion or outcome. It is an objective, systematic, step-by-step -step process to determine God's purpose in having these words inspired, 
preserved, written down, and passed on. Therefore, we ask these same questions every week. First, we ask the history about a passage. We ask it. Any objective, reliable interpretation always begins with the history, the literal meaning. If you cannot, listen carefully, if you quote a verse to support your point and you cannot articulate the historical context in which that verse was written, your interpretation is just a random shot in the dark. Maybe you'll get it right. If you do, it's by the grace of God and you're totally lucky. We are at risk without understanding the history of imposing whatever meaning we find convenient or inspirationally effective in our modern purview of the passage. Suddenly, we now limit the impact that this passage can have to just our little world, our little culture. Sarasota, probably not even Mayaka or Bradenton. That wasn't a rip on them, by the way. Yes, it was. No, it wasn't. Just joking. To guard against postmodern meaningless babble at Grace Life, we have developed these questions to ask of each passage. And they're very simple. What about man? What did he do? Why did he do it? What happened to him? Why and how did it happen? We ask this of every passage that is taught and preached at Grace Life. They are designed to help us understand the importance of church history, both intellectually, theologically, and philosophically, to understand what the context of the passage is. This allows us a foundation. Get this now. This is important. This allows us for a foundation for an interpretation that is relevant to all time, all cultures, all languages, and all people, not just middle-class white people in Sarasota. So that's the history. Then we talk about the spiritual. We call this the theological because it explores God in the passage. This is crucial. Let me explain why this is important. Let me explain why God is the linchpin between the historical and the personal. Because God is the only living constant, the never-changing link, and the bridge between yesterday and today. So therefore, we ask these questions. What about God? What did he do? Why and how did he do it? Once we understand these two things, the history and the theology, we actually now have the best chance possible to determine the purpose of God for us in a passage. We can have an accurate, practical application for today and all time. Now we can start to enjoy a confident, solid impact on our emotions and experiences and our daily decisions and this leads to the personal. I used to call it devotional. This is the fun part. Frankly, this is the marketable part of any Bible study, book, sermon, etc. right? That's where we always want to go. We love that part. We like the devotional, the personal. It makes us smile, makes us cry, makes us laugh, makes us feel better. We love the experience side of God's word, don't we? But we are, by nature, 
so selfish, so spiritually narcissistic, we want to run right to this every time without doing the important work first. Run right to it. Let's get right to the smiling and the crying. Because that means God is really here, right? Well, no, it just means you're smiling or crying. But when we are armed with the foundational understanding of history and theology, we have the tools and information now needed to answer these questions. What about us? What do we do? Why and how do we do it? You ever wonder where I came up with these questions? Let's revert back to the verse I used earlier. This is what the questions really are. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Church, we can't even ask the questions in Acts 2.37 if we don't know what God is saying in the first place. We must know what he is saying. Therefore, it is crucial for us to spend all the necessary time to go systematically through God's word week after week. Yes, sometimes month after month. And let me tell you something. For me, as your pastor, this is the most important. I have a lot of jobs. This one that I do each week is the most important in my life. It pays the least, but it's the most important. This process of going through chapter by chapter, book by book, verse by verse, asking these questions of every pericope, every teaching area in the scripture gives me great comfort as your pastor that I am following Paul's admonition to his disciple Timothy when he said, Timothy, do your best. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved Don't cut corners, Timothy. Don't copy someone else's garbage. Don't jump right to the personal. Study the history. Study the theology. Do the research. Ask friends. Get accountability. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent, in other words, irresponsible, incompetent babble for it will lead to people into more and more ungodliness so now you know why we go through these marathon sermon series at Grace Life it's because your pastor is full of anxiety that what he says won't be irreverent, irresponsible babble that leads you to ungodliness. I'm serious. What I say up here has a big impact on your heart and life, and it frightens me. Your pastor has no confidence in his own worldview and experience to transform you. As right as he may be, (laughs) he has no confidence in it. Your pastor lacks the creativity and the wisdom necessary to develop well-marketed, slick teaching campaigns. Your pastor is hopelessly 
helplessly reliant on God's word to tell me, not for me, to tell it. Your pastor finds tremendous comfort and safety in allowing God's word to dictate the topic week to week. Your pastor loves you and wants you to have a working skill set to read truth on your own and interpret it. Why? Because it is the word of God that holds the power to save us. Dad, we love your word. We love your truth. Please keep our spiritual narcissism out of its way. Let us embrace the comfort and safety of diving in without a time frame, a deadline, a schedule. God, we want to hear from you. We want to know what you have to say on your schedule. Help us to rest knowing while life is speeding around around us that we can just rest in the power of your word. 